0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from the What Fresh Hell podcast. My guest today is Annie Murphy Paul, an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Scientific American, and the best American science writing among many other publications. She is the author of the book Origins and the Cult of Personality. And her new book, The Extended Mind The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, reveals how we can tap the intelligence that exists beyond our brains, in our bodies, our surroundings, and our relationships. And I will also say that Annie is a close personal friend of mine for, (laughs) I believe the word decades applies. For sure. Everyone knows that I'm an oldie locks on this podcast. So I can say that we've known each other for decades at this point. Anyway, welcome, Annie. It's so nice to have you. (laughs) It's so good to be here, Meg. Your book starts with the phrase, use your head and talks about, I will say, I will admit of an expression I use multiple times (laughs) a week with my children. Sometimes use your noodle, use your noggin. I mean, we take different takes on it. Mm -hmm. But your book kind of starts with this premise about why that phrase is kind of inaccurate and leads us to misunderstand our own brains. So can you talk about that as your starting point and what led you there?
2: Yeah, so... Use your head. I employed that phrase as a kind of, it's a summation of a certain attitude and a certain paradigm that we apply to thinking. Right. And that is, you could call that a brain bound or brain centric paradigm in which we locate thinking inside the head. We think that all of our thinking processes operate inside the head in the brain. And we really give too much weight to the brain. We sort of idealize it and fetishize it in a way. And my point is that actually thinking happens, it's sort of spread out across the body, across the spaces in which we learn and work and across our relationships with other people. And the brain itself, the brain on its own is really limited. And the way we transcend those limits is by skillfully pulling in those other kinds of resources. And that's not something that we're really taught to do. And we don't teach our own kids to do, but I think that should change.
0: One of the things that we talk a lot about on the podcast and the way we like to approach things is bringing in authors and books and experts who tell us, an easier way to do things versus like, there's actually kids in Belgium who are eating frogs at midnight and they never complain. And you should, you know, your kids are failing because they're not doing that. And I feel like this book really falls into that first good category. It's not saying like, you're totally messing up the way you're using your brain. It's really saying your brain has a very specific way of functioning that maybe we're not tapping into in the correct ways. And let's talk a little bit about the way we think of our brains as a muscle. Mm -hmm. Let's make it stronger and better. And then soon, you know, we're going to be able to fly because (laughs) we're going to use this brain in this very specific way. Yes. And what's wrong with that idea? We're all still waiting for that to happen, right? And somehow it's not. (laughs) I mean, I have to tell you, by the end of this book, you are not able to fly, which is a disappointing part. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us have had this experience
2: during the pandemic where, you know, we started working at home. We're working maybe a lot more just to keep up with new demands. And we weren't commuting. We weren't chatting with colleagues at the office. We were just working morning till night. And it's not the case that I think a lot of us feel like we were running on all cylinders. Do you know what I mean?
0: No, I think it's fair to say that's not the case, Annie. No. (laughs) That's not the case. Yeah. So I think we had this
2: huge natural experiment, courtesy of the pandemic, which showed us that This idea of the brain as muscle, and if you just exercise it more and more and push it harder and harder, it's going to get bigger and stronger and you're going to be smarter. I don't think that's how the brain actually works, you know. And I do like the idea, Meg, of like, this is an easier way to think because I think that's actually true in the sense that we have this very limiting model of how to use the brain. And that is treat it like a workhorse that you just sort of keep flogging at it and like, yes, sit there until it's done. And that's actually... When actually it would be much better to take a walk or have a conversation with a friend or, you know, do something that gets you out of that changes your context instead of staying there in this very almost punitive way. I think it's like you're being punished until you can finish the task. It's not a congenial way to treat the brain at all.
0: I feel like we were raised on this idea of... Well, you're really only using 20% of your brain. Where did that idea go? I mean, you've heard that before, right? Oh, we're only using 20% of our brains. Right. It's
2: actually almost the opposite. It's like we're using our poor brains to the max at this point. You know, our biological brains were never evolved to do the incredibly difficult things that we ask of it these days, which is, you know, dealing with abstract concepts and symbols and counterintuitive Theories from science, for example, these things are really hard for the biological brain to handle. And we're really, our brains are working at maximum capacity, you know? So, really, the only way to get smarter is to transcend those limits of the biological brain, bring in these other resources and do that in a really skillful and intentional way. I mean, we think outside the brain is the phrase I like to use. Now, we do use our bodies and our spaces and our relationships, but kind of in a haphazard way. And we could be much more thoughtful and intentional about how we do that.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. So we're rejecting this model of like, just get to the desk, Nike swoosh, just do it. (laughs) Use your (laughs) noggin, use your brain. And you lay out in the book a lot of really practical ways to expand your mind and use these outside resources Mm -hmm. to, you use the metaphor, we're big on metaphors, I love a metaphor of, instead of the brain as a workhorse, the brain as an orchestra conductor. Right. And so how does that actually function? Yeah, well, that would mean being an orchestra conductor and putting the
2: brain in that role would mean that the brain is not responsible for all of the work that needs to get done. Instead, it gets distributed across various different resources. And you might, you know, for example, gestures, if your listeners can't see us, but if they did, they would see that I'm moving
0: my hands all around. Trust me, she is moving her <laughs> hands all around. all around.
2: Our hands actually can, they can take on some of our cognitive load. You know, that's the benefit of gesturing is that we kind of share our mental burden between our brains and our hands. And the same is true when we offload the contents of our minds onto physical space in some way, whether that's a big whiteboard or a bunch of post-it notes. You know, we tend to put a premium on doing things in our head in our society. We think that really smart people, you know, geniuses do it in their heads, but actually we want to be getting our thoughts out of our heads whenever possible so that we can spread them out. We can interact with them. We can use our spatial memory, all these resources that we have. As creatures that are used to navigating a three-dimensional environment and manipulating physical objects rather than dealing with abstract concepts, when we turn our ideas into these sort of artifacts that we can more easily manipulate and navigate through, then we can think about them
0: better something we talk a lot on the podcast about, we call it the thousand year rule that it's a good touchstone with kids. Like mm. have people been doing this for a thousand years? It's probably a good idea. Swaddling falls into that category, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like the mama chew bouncy baby thing that you absolutely must have this season does not fall into that category. So like, <laughs> you know, we sort of use it to facilitate our idea of how we think about like, is this necessary or not? And this does pass the thousand-year rule. You give an example, and I was so happy you used it because I've been studying ancient civilizations as part of my seventh grade home learning curriculum while I've been helping my kid with homeschooling. oh, And you talked about, I believe it's the queepee is that how it's pronounced? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us about that because I'm so thrilled to be able to use my knowledge of the creepy <laughs> in real life after learning it because my kid was studying in seventh grade and I had to help tutor him.
2: Yeah, see this when your kid says like, when am I ever going to use
0: this? You can be like, hey, <laughs> yeah, look at me. I am talking about the creepy right now yes. at my work.
2: Yeah. So that was a reference to the ways in which human beings have always thought outside the brain. This isn't something that we do Just because we have smartphones and we now download all of our memory and other mental functions onto our phones, that is like the latest version of it. But humans have been offloading and extending their minds for millennia. And we know this because there are actually artifacts that can show us how, for example, merchants in the ancient world used clay tokens to stand in for livestock or other things that they were trading. And this was a way of offloading the need to keep those numbers and
0: those calculations in your head. And then the quipus is that how you say it? I'm not even really sure. So I do not know the correct pronunciation, but let's go with quipu. Let's go with that. We'd be happy to learn. Yeah. If you have a correction, I would gladly hear it. Oh, Annie, please let me tell this one since I know it. Oh, oh please. okay. I just set it up for you there, Meg. Okay. They use knotted ropes to keep track of where the warriors were during battle times. Mm, mm. But I think what's interesting about this is I think that our perception sometimes is I'm so dumb. I have to Mm. use this stuff. I have to write it down. I have so such bad mom brain that I have to keep a calendar with different colors. But that what you're saying is like this is really a natural extension of the brain. This is how we should be using our brains. A
2: hundred percent. Yes. And I think that's another kind of problem with the brain as muscle metaphor. It's like, if your brain then doesn't work very well, and that happens to all of us all the time, you know, we forget things, we can't pay attention, we don't feel motivated. What is there to blame except for, you know, well, I guess my brain isn't that strong, or I haven't been exercising it that much when really, these limits are universal. I mean, they're just baked into the nature of the brain as this biological evolved organ. And The only way that humans have been able to do the amazing things that humans do is by thinking outside the brain and using these external resources. We just kind of have a blind spot for the important role that those resources play.
0: I want to talk about how this informs our kids and their learning. And we're going to do that right after this break.
1: Different fuel sources. If you want to
0: take the next step in improving your health, go to Lumen.me and use Fresh to get one hundred dollars off your Lumen. That is L U M E
1: N dot M E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for one hundred dollars off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode.
0: Okay, we're back with Annie Murphy Paul, the author of The Extended Mind, and. One of the things that really struck me in the book is I have a child who has an IEP. And one thing that IEP, for people who don't know, it means he's in special ed of some sort and gets special supports at school. And a lot of the concepts in this book, I recognized from special ed supports. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the role of the body in the mind and this idea of fidgeting. And kids, you know, when you go into a special ed classroom in a school, you see things like wobble seats. You see chew sticks, kids who can chew on things while they learn. Some kids might be lying on the floor where they learn, walking around while they learn. And again... I think our tendency is to look at it and say like, oh, these poor kids, they can't sit absolutely still and learn and use their brain muscle like it's supposed to be used. And I was really struck in the book that this idea of like, this is very fundamental to how the mind works, motion and being inside your body while learning and taking in information. And so what's the connection there?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, Meg, because it has often struck me that kids and people with learning differences are almost like
0: at the cutting edge of thinking outside the brain. I say that all the time. I'm like, come talk to the IEP moms, because we can tell you about the brain. Totally. We think about it a lot. Right. And think about how, because these
2: kids' brains maybe work differently from other kids' brains, they've had to develop all kinds of resourceful ways to bring in these outside resources. And I really think there's a lot to learn from the techniques that they've developed that work for them. And you're right. It's not just the case that kids with learning differences need to move. We all need to move. Again, this is like our nature as human beings. And it actually consumes a fair amount of mental bandwidth to inhibit that urge to move. We all have this sort of, you know, we're meant to be moving in microwaves and in macro ways and to kind of force ourselves to stay still. That actually uses up some of the mental bandwidth that you might otherwise apply to school or to work. So parents and teachers often have this idea that you have to get a kid to sit still and pay attention in order to do their work when really lots of kids have to move in order to pay attention and do their work. And so finding ways to allow that and to encourage that and to make kids help kids understand that moving can actually be a part of learning and thinking, I think is the direction we want to go.
0: I think it's something else we know instinctively. I know for myself that if I have a something I'm trying to write, I read my background on it and then I pause and I go for a walk. And mm-hmm. almost always during that walk, it comes to me. And in the book, you really talk about why that mm-hmm. is. So what is that process that causes that?
2: Well, there's a couple of things that are going on there. I mean, one is that bodily movement tends to enhance cognitive processes. It, it helps us become more alert and it seems to stimulate mental processes that remain dormant when we're sitting still. Another interesting element of this is that we tend to think in metaphors because our way of understanding abstract concepts is to put them in the terms that our body understands, our bodies that interact with the physical world. So we say things like, we're reaching for a goal or we're running behind schedule. You know, our language shows how we put things in these metaphors of embodied, you know, experience with the world. And then it can work the other way, as well, if we put our body in a situation in which it's moving, in which, you know, we're experiencing a sense of flow and dynamism and change that can kind of prime our brain to think in that way. And so, when we're sitting still, I mean, think about the metaphors we use to describe a sense of not being successful at thinking. We say we're stuck or we're in a rut. We're hitting a wall. And we can't move. We're hitting a wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But when things are going well, we might say I'm on a roll. You know, my thoughts are flowing. So we actually want to get our body moving that way. And that primes our brain to sort of follow suit. That's
0: super interesting. And when we think about our kids in terms of the way that they learn, and kids who are non-neurotypical and kids who are neurotypical, and I have both, that it can be true for all sorts of kids. And so you're a mom, I know, you have two kids of your own. How does it apply to Mm -hmm. the kids sitting at your dining room table who are coming home from school? And what did you learn about how you want to parent? So many things. I mean, two we've already touched on. One is that I want my kids to understand that
2: if their brain fails them, like in these little ways that can really frustrate us all, especially kids, sometimes when they're doing homework and whatnot, that that is not a reflection on them. It's as an individual not being smart or something, it's a reflection on the limitations that are built into all our brains, and that they have so many options when that kind of thing happens, when they're struggling, or when they're, you know, trying to grasp something, they have a whole sort of suite of options, other than just sort of Again, flogging their brain, you know, working harder and harder. They have so many options. Right.
0: Just sit in the chair until you get it. Right.
2: So I do encourage them to take a walk. I do encourage them to move their hands when they're trying to explain something. I'll say, try moving your hands when you say that because gesturing can actually sort of bring the words to mind in a way that would not happen if we weren't moving our hands.
0: Yeah. I mean, I go back to those special ed supports, a visual calendar. First, we will do this, then we will do this, then we will do this. And Mm -hmm. that's a lot of the work that our brain does, Mm -hmm. right? If then, and how, what comes next? And I think that we tend to internalize that normalcy and high-functioningness is not needing those supports. Right, right. But that what I like about this book is that it really underscores that these supports are very natural to the mind. Yes,
2: and really helpful to us throughout life. You know, it always strikes me that, like, we think it's okay for kindergartners to use manipulatives, you know, to use counting rods or whatever, but then that's kind of kid stuff, and you're supposed to leave that behind. Outgrow that, yeah. Yeah, but... You know, if you think about an architect and how they're not constructing or designing a building in their head, they're often using a model, you know, that they can move their body around, that they can interact with. And there are lots of professions that have realized that thinking outside the brain is actually the characteristic of an expert, of someone who's a master at something, you know.
0: It really made me think of I was a screenwriter for many years, Mm -hmm. and the first step of screenwriting is 50 index cards that says, you know, Annie robs the bank, Annie gets chased down the street by police, Annie runs it, you know, and then you start moving them around and you say, okay, wait, she's got to meet her partner in crime before she robs the bank. And you just spend all your days in front of a giant corkboard moving index cards around to figure out what the story is.
2: Right. And, you know, it's interesting to think that if you didn't do that, you tried to do it all in your head, you'd probably come up with a much inferior story, you know,
0: much, you almost couldn't do it, your mind, truly, you feel the thesis of this book, when you try to do that, your brain's like, (laughs) (laughs) you can feel the rusty wheels just come to a stop, right? But the minute you kind of lay it out visually, and I think it's the kind of thing especially, and I want to take a break and come back and talk about moms, that this kind of thinking about our brain can really help us structure like how to do this better for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... I'm back talking with Annie Murphy-Paul, who is the author of The Extended Mind, and we talked about this book in terms of what it can mean for our kids, and now I want to talk a little bit about ourselves as moms running kind of busy, crazy households, and one of the things that really struck me in this book, I've never heard the term interreception before, Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit of that and how it plays in. Another thing I'm obsessed with is instinct. Just listen to your guts, mom. And I'm like, I don't think that's quite the right advice. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about interoception. And then we'll talk about whether or not moms should listen to their guts.
2: <laughs> yeah. So interoception is a fancy scientific word that means the capacity to sense your internal sensations. So just as we're taking in all this information from the outside world through our eyes and our ears and our noses So we also are receiving this stream of information from inside our body. And so, you know, gut feeling is a term that all of us have heard and that kind of captures what interoception is. But what was so interesting to me about this research is that I too am kind of skeptical of like, you know, listen to your gut. Like I tend to be actually a rather sort of yes. cerebral person. So, but I was really interested by this research that suggests that, As we're going through our daily lives, we're encountering so much information, so many patterns, so many regularities in our experience that we can't store those in our conscious minds, but we do store it non-consciously. And then the way we get access to that non-conscious sort of treasure trove of experience, our own experience, is through these gut feelings. That is what is happening When you feel a little twinge of nervousness or a little surge of excitement, you know, that's like your own store of experience telling you, oh, you've encountered a situation like this before.
0: You've been here before.
2: Yes. And here's a guide to how to handle this situation. And the more sensitive you are to those internal cues, the better use you can make of them.
0: I think my problem with the gut feeling is the other side of the equation that I tend to be extremely reactive to things. And I found, especially after having kids and I had some postpartum anxiety and other stuff going on around, my gut instincts became so hypersensitive Mm. that I was getting like danger, danger, impending death messages all the time. Mm. And that I felt like people kind of being like, go with your mom gut. I was like, okay, my mom gut tells me that the world is ending all the time and Mm -hmm. horrible things are about to happen to my kids all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I was skeptical when I sort of started this section, but really I love this idea. Talk to us about the interoception journal and like how you can really Mm -hmm. track this stuff to make it useful to you so that you're not on one side of the spectrum so brain bound that you're like, I'm not in touch with my body or what's going on. But then you're not really on the other side with me being like, brain tells me all danger, I'm being chased by a bear 24 hours a day, which is not a great way to live for the record. (laughs) Right. No, you don't want that.
2: Yeah, I would say there's actually two techniques that I found to be useful. One is that affect labeling that I write about in the book, which is just naming what you feel and not judging it, not building it up into anything, just like Sort of in a very calm and non judgmental way and curious way, like naming what it is that you feel. And then the interoceptive journal that you mentioned, that's a way of sort of tracking your internal signals and what they're telling you. And then what actually happened, making that connection. And then looking back on that record that you've kept, you know, I felt like this when I made this decision, and this is how it turned out. You can see patterns, you know, maybe there are times when your interoception, your internal signals are steering you right. And then other times when you realize, oh, no, actually, that was I was overreacting in that moment. And, you know, in future scenarios like that, maybe I can sort of put that aside a little
0: bit. I like that idea a lot. And I think it ties in. We were just talking on a recent episode about highly sensitive kids, kids with sensitivity issues, and that I was saying one of the things that has gotten a lot better for my very sensitive kid is as a youngster, he had to be reminded all the time of like, do you have to pee? Are you going to throw up in the car? Mm -hmm. Are you tired? Do you need something to eat? Like his sense, his whatever connection was he was struggling with a little bit in terms of like, but that I was saying all of that work in verbalizing constantly for him, What is this feeling? And what does it mean? I have seen those connections come together. And I think that the journal Mm -hmm. is just a more direct way to do that. Absolutely.
2: You know, I hear you when you're saying that you as a mom had sometimes overwhelming kind of interoceptive sensations, but I think there is that contrasting scenario where moms are so busy as we go through our day, we're so harried, we're so attuned to the needs of other people that we're not really checking in with our own internal sensations. We kind of push them aside in order to get the job done. But yes. what I love people to understand is that you get the job done in terms of being effective in the world. You can do that better if you're actually in tune with those internal sensations in a balanced way.
0: And that, that work is not other time. It's valuable time. That idea of like taking time for myself is selfish. Taking time for myself screws up the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. That this thesis is saying to take some set amount of time each day to really check in with yourself is something that your brain really needs and wants to function correctly. Yes.
2: And if moms are still feeling guilty about doing it, I would tell them that it can actually help you understand others. That's another function of interoception is that when we tune into our own bodies, we're better able to get a read on what other people are feeling because we have, you know, when people are face-to-face, they tend to subtly mimic each other's facial expressions and gestures and postures. And then we read off our own bodies, how that makes us feel. And that's the basis of empathy. That's how we kind of feel each other's pain, you know? So people who are more interoceptively, aware are better able to use their bodies as an instrument to get a sense of how others are feeling.
0: Yeah. And I think coming from like my very Irish Catholic, like, (laughs) all right, that sounds like a lot of nonsense, Annie Murphy Paul. (laughs) Like, let's just get on with our day. Uh But Taking the time that it's really not an indulgence, that it is a help. It is a step towards where you are trying to go. Mm -hmm. It is not a step to the side, time out from where you are trying to go.
2: Right. I endorse
0: that as a fellow Irish Catholic. Fantastic. I mean, listen, it's naughty. Amy always says her grandmother's phrase is tweet, tweet. Like, okay, (laughs) tweet, tweet with your massages and your self-care. But like, (laughs) let's get back to business. But that is sort of like the business of what we're trying to do. And the role of the pandemic in all of this is super Mm. interesting. You started this book, I assume, well before the pandemic. Oh, yeah. And so now, what has the pandemic like, what did we learn? Yeah, And how did you see the themes that you talk about? I mean, it seems so obvious, so many of them Mm. play out during the pandemic. So, you know, one of the lessons of the pandemic, I think we already touched on, which
2: is we realized during the 16 months or whatever it was that we were really sort of locked in our homes and prisoners to our screens that we don't think as well without access to our mental extensions, without, you know, the freedom to move our bodies around and the freedom to go to new and stimulating places, and also the freedom to interact with other people face to face, like those things really matter, those things really affect our thinking, and we did worse without them. And, you know, I think we also saw, especially for our kids, the limitations of online life, digital life, you know, and how much is lost when We're looking at each other through a screen. There's so much subtlety and nuance to human interaction that just gets lost in the ether when we're online. So I'm hoping, you know, for all of our sakes, that we can get back together in person this fall in schools, in workplaces. You know, there's a lot of convenience to working and maybe doing school at home, but I think it's so important to have at least some time together in person.
0: One thing I noticed is that when the schedule kind of first came out, let's say the kids have 45-minute periods, you know, eight 45-minute periods a day or whatever it was, that Originally, it was like, okay, your Zoom is going to be 45 minutes long because it's like you just came into class. Mm-hmm. And then it immediately became clear, I have it a fifth grader, like a fifth grader is not gonna sit still for, you forget that so much of that part of class is coming in. Oh, they're roughhousing. Like, okay, break them up. Oh, now get them in their chairs. Okay, right. That really, there's only like 20 or 25 minutes <laughs> of actual learning going on, if that. right? And I thought it was a really interesting opportunity to kind of think about that a little bit in terms of like how much classroom time is actually learning time and how much do they need this time to come in and kind of tussle around and see each other's faces and goof around or something falls and then everyone's laughing about that. But that, again, that's not time that our mind is wasting. That's time that our mind needs to extend.
2: Absolutely, yes. That's really good, 20 minutes max. Yeah, you know, another thing I think some of us, I certainly did learn from the pandemic is how great it feels to be outside. A lot of us had more yes. freedom to be outside. Like my kids' schools held a lot of their classes outside when the weather was okay. And, you know, I, that's something I really don't want to lose as we go back to quote unquote normal life, you know, that being outside is really restorative in ways that you just can't get inside.
0: I love that. It's so my kids are in Scouts, and there's an expression: scouting is ninety percent outing. <laughs> when I was leading a Boy Scout den they were like, when in doubt, be outside. I don't care if it's 12 degrees outside. When in doubt, be outside. Mm -hmm. Outside is half the battle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a good takeaway from this book as well. Mm. We could talk about this book for four hours because (laughs) there is so much interesting stuff in it. Please read The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul and tell us what else you're working on, where we can find you, where we can get the book. I'm sure it's wherever books are sold (laughs) at this point, but tell us anyway.
2: Yes. So I also spend an awful lot of time on Twitter. My handle is at Annie Murphy Paul. And uh, people can always find me there. I also have a website, www.annymurphypaul.com.
0: Excellent. And we will link to all of those things. My friend, Annie Murphy Paul, thank you so much for coming on What Fresh Hell and talking to me. This was so much fun. Thank you, Meg. This was a lot of fun. Great to talk to you.
3: Well, hey there, Busy Mama.